Welcome to season three of This Is Me. My name is Katie Matten and in the previous two seasons, Siobhan met everyday Australians and they shared with us their life-changing moments. In this new season of This Is Me, we have 10 inspiring stories that will hopefully let you walk a mile in someone else's shoes. If you have a story you'd like to share, you can DM us at This Is Me Podcast on Instagram. My name is Brent. I'm a 45-year-old father. I was an abused child, both physically and sexually. I lived a life of crime, drugs, gang, and spent many years in jail. There's some stains on your photo. Let's start from the beginning. For anybody that doesn't know Brent Simpson, has never heard or read about your story, where did you grow up and who did you grow up with? I was actually born Brent Alchorn and later in life, which we'll get to, I changed my name to Simpson. But I was born in the North Shore of Sydney, Manly District Hospital. Um, I was the oldest of three children and we grew up in an area um, originally, from what I can remember, till about the age of four uh, on the beautiful uh, DY, but then moved out to the Housing Commission, uh, the western suburbs of Sydney. A lot of um, heartache, a lot of pain, a lot of crime, a lot of alcoholism, and a lot of abuse, both physical, sexual. Um, life wasn't really what you'd expect for a young person to, to grow up around. What do you remember about your childhood? Did you play out on the streets or did you get on well with your siblings? Look, my siblings were too young to sort of run around with. I'm four years older than my youngest brother. I remember in the summer nights, especially daylight saving and stuff like that, there was, you know, always a game of touch footy or cricket or, you know, going down the bush and riding your BMX bike. Mine in particular was bits and pieces of um, ones that had been found in a tip in, in a junkyard and I'd build it up because we couldn't afford to buy one. And Anyway, that was another story. That got stolen. <laughs> but what didn't get stolen back then? Um, they are probably my better memories of growing up there. And what were your parents like? Look, my mother came from a strong Irish Catholic parents and, and background. So, you know, she was very, I guess, set in her ways, very strict. My father, on the other hand, uh, was a hard-working man, heavy drinker. You know, back then, quite an unhappy man, an angry man, a violent man. Was he violent towards you? There were times there um, where he would lash out, but, you know, he was quite violent towards my mother and, you know, as a young boy jumping in front of your mother when she's getting her face punched, yeah, I, I was hit and, you know, picked up and thrown into bedroom doors head first and today I still believe it you know you you stand in front of anybody that's going to you know attack a woman you know that continued on for many years from the age of about 10 or 11 it was sort of picked up by counsellors and stuff that I was coming to school bruised and um, soon enough family and community services or docs were involved and um, later on yeah I was removed from my father's custody. I seen my mother have a nose basically splattered across her face and, you know, there was a lot of blood everywhere and I, I was very young, about nine, ten years of age and freaked out and, you know, started hitting my father and 
you know, trying to protect my mother and next minute I'm being picked up, thrown headfirst into, you know, the old sort of honeycomb um, doors that they used to have on the Housing Commission doors back then. You know, that sort of memory, amongst many, but that one in particular is one that sort of, you know, hit home. There were others later on that, you know, uh, were, were quite full on. How but, old you would know. you have been when you witnessed that? Oh, look, I remember as far back as six and seven, you know, right up till my mother left my father. So that was at the age of about 10. You mentioned sexual abuse. Was that to do with your father? Absolutely not. You know, my father had left and I was being uh, sexually abused by the neighbours, um, by the brothers or the, the Morris brothers at school. My mother had a best friend who had a son and a daughter who were older than us and, you know, the daughter had come and babysit at a stage and then, you know, the big brother had come over and he would interfere with us, uh, in particular me and, you know, uh, my sister had experiences but I'm not going to speak on behalf of her. How yeah, old was so, he? Oh, that were late teens. I was a young boy. Were your parents aware of what was going on? Uh, look, I don't speak to my mother. I have nothing to do with her and I've never really... Yeah, you know, I have no emotional connection, so I don't know. Um, my father, the one time I did tell him, I copped a hiding for for saying it, for telling him that I was being abused. You know, so. Do you think he didn't believe you, or he just didn't want to believe well, you? Back then, they were all friends. It just doesn't happen. It didn't happen. I was a liar. You know, I was a troublemaker. But later on in life, without going into too much of his story, but um, I've learnt that. You know, he went through a very, very serious sexual abuse over two years in the Scouts, which now I look at and I, I sort of go, well, I could see him having a flashback or freaking out and, and just instantly reacting. Was it your mum that left your dad? Well, he left the home. You know, my mother, for some reason, was never really connected with me you know it was always my younger siblings um I reminded her too much of my father in her own words um, that's what I used to cop and so you know moving forward um there come a stage where I was just dumped in a gutter out the front of where he lived and that was that how old were you then uh nearly 12 11 nearly 12 I was a young boy and that was it off she went with my younger siblings um you know there's probably a story behind that um, I don't know, as far as I'm concerned, you don't drop a child anywhere and leave them, no matter what your situation or circumstances are, so... So she dropped you off at your dad's house, left you on the doorstep. Was he home? Not at that time, no. He was at work, so he'd come home to find me with my bags in tears, sitting at the front door, basically, out in the street. Did he still see your other siblings? No, we were completely cut off um, for the best part, 12, 13 years at least. My mother had made it clear, I am not her son. So you were 12, living with your dad, no communication with your mum. No. How was life from then with your dad? Shit, absolutely shit. Um, he, he had another woman who had three children and, and to be honest with you, I was always just treated like shit. You know, we had what was known as wheelie bins back then, which, um, oh, sorry, wheelie bin, which were called auto bins. And, you know, I was just always fed scraps. I was just rubbish. Had to do the chores and if I wasn't, then I'd come home and him, my father would come home and she'd just 
tell him that I was just, re- you know, rebelling. I was aggressive. I was verbally abusive. And I'd cop a flogging for it. You know, I'd sit down at the dinner table watching her three children eating lovely fresh cooked meals whilst I was just given scraps or leftovers or, you know, my nickname was Otto. So whatever the kids didn't want, they'd scrape onto my plate. Basically, so she just, cooked a dinner for herself and your dad and her three kids and you yeah. didn't get a plate of the same dinner? No, no, no. So how long was life like that for? By that stage, I was truly rebellious. I was lonely. I was empty. I had no emotion. I didn't care. No one cared about me, you know. I, I was a totally just torn child. I'd been ripped to pieces, sexually, physically, mentally. No one wanted to listen, no one cared, no one believed me. I just kept getting flogged and, you know, it, it just, I hated everything and everyone. Um, I, I began at a very young age stealing alcohol and drinking alcohol, um, truanting from school. I mean, it was embarrassing to go to school because, you know, I'd go to school and I always had, you know, secondhand clothes or shit shoes and just, I stood out, you know, I stood out as the the kid with no one that gave a damn and it was it was hard it was really really hard to swallow because you know I, I wasn't accepted into groups and you know, I never got invited anywhere I was always the one on the outside trying to you know gain someone's you know attention or respect or you know be a part of a group and I was, I was always on the outer so for me I just truly imploded and became extremely aggressive um lived on the streets, I'd run away from home. Yeah, I, I didn't care because I had no stable home life. I was dealing with being physically beaten up. Like, it was just so much there that I was carrying. Um, it wasn't school. It wasn't good. I mean, I was always very intelligent. I was always able to be told, you know, you've got the, you've got an amazing brain. You could be anything in life. You know, every one of my reports, but I was always not there, if that makes sense because of the way the home life was, you know, I wasn't a present student. Hmm. Um, I was a great footballer. I was always selected, but when push come to shove, you know, they, they, they always picked the kids that had the stable home environment that they knew would represent uh, the best and be a good thing for, you know, the groups or the school or the representative rugby league. So for me, I was always told, you know, oh, don't worry, mate, next time. I was just always brushed off. So I felt very um, very unwanted, very distant from everybody, unloved. Well, understandably so, and through no fault of your own because you were just a, a young kid. I was a child. Did any of your teachers realise yeah, what look, was going on at home? There was, was, but there was so much more, you know. Like I said, um, docs and family and community services had got involved. So, yeah. It was embarrassing, you know, I'm up at the counsellor's office and, you know, out the front of the principal's room at a desk. Like, I just got so alienated from everybody. It didn't help. It wasn't productive. It was, if anything, so negative and humiliating. Did child services ever get involved? Yeah, I was put in foster homes. Um, I ran away from them. I just didn't feel, you know, they weren't for me. They weren't my home. I'm not their child, they, why would they love me? Why would they care? Like, I'm just filling a spot, you know what I mean? They're just ticking boxes and helping someone out. And, you know, back then it was just like, oh, fuck, I don't want to be here. You know, coming up to Christmas time, this is not my family. Why would I want to be around here? See, I'm going, got my bags, off I go. You know, the street was my home. A study has found just over 1,100 people are sleeping rough in New South Wales. 
I was so comfortable on the street. You know, I'd sleep in the middle of a football oval or a cricket oval at night because I knew that very rarely people walk through the dark. They'll go around, but they very rarely will come through the middle. And most people get spooked by that. So for me, that was a safe haven. Or I'd break into a community hall in winter, you know, and, and put on all the heaters, the gas heaters on the walls and just, you know, curl up in a corner and know that I could be warm and, you know, that, that's how it was. And then I was stealing cars and, you know, sleeping in stolen cars. What age were you when you were living on the street? Uh, this was ongoing, you know, from the age of 12 right through to my mid-teens. I was a thief. I would break into shops. I would hang around bakeries. Bakeries were always good. I always got good pies, you know, and I made friends with a, a particular baker and I used to hang out there from, you know, like 11.30 when he started work till all hours in the morning. And sometimes he'd let me sleep out the back after giving me a feed. Um, you know, but... You become a burden after a while. Next thing you know, I'm out doing crime and, and the police start looking around, they're knocking on his door. Well, that didn't last much longer after that. Now the poor bloke's trying to do something good. And, yeah. Did the police ever try and take you home because you were so young? No. No, they'd just lock you up. There was and no home. I didn't have a home. I didn't have anyone to bail me out. And you didn't see your dad at that time? No, like my dad, our relationship went real bad. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I was just a try. By that stage, I was trouble. I was just out of control and unmanageable. Did you have many mates? No. No, not at all. I didn't trust anyone. And to be honest with you, I don't think many people wanted to know me because I was always in trouble. When did you start getting in trouble with the police? From the age of 11. I was charged with assault and robbery. No, I held three adults hostage at a key card machine. My thoughts were survival. That's plain and simple. You know, the only way for me to get by and, and make money and put a roof over my head, I mean, who was going to employ a homeless kid at 12, 13 years of age? Doesn't happen. You know, for me, I had to fend for myself, put shoes on my feet, clothes on my back. You know, and back then, you know, I was, I became very good at breaking into major stores and cleaning them out. You know, I was wearing country robe and Lacoste and Gantt and, you know, walking around looking like a million dollars. When really I was just a homeless kid that would probably get, you know, jumped for all these clothing and shoes around the corner from where I took them. And that was just the way of the world. How many years did you go on like that for? My last jail sentence was six years and that was in 2009, 2010. So every time the judge said you were going to end up doing more time in jail, what did you think? What was going through your head? It was just part of it, you know. I knew that, that was going to happen. I guess the thing was, you know, trying to make a name for yourself and become notorious, people to respect you, no one to hurt you. I lost all sense of feeling. I didn't fear, I didn't care, I didn't... Yeah, I was numb. My biggest thing was to make sure no one ever hurt me again. Were you angry at your parents for what your life was like? I used to tell people that my mother died of cancer because they'd never ask another question. I didn't know where she was. I didn't know, I didn't have any contact with her. You know, she was basically dead. So, you know, when anyone said, oh, you know, where's your mum? Where's your... Don't know her. She's dead. Full stop. Not another question. I wouldn't allow myself to be involved, you know, emotionally because I knew that that would make me weak and make me vulnerable. Um, and vulnerability is something you don't want to have on the streets. Heroin was very big back then, so that was a tough thing because a lot of people around me started to die. Were you involved in drugs yourself? Absolutely. 
You know, I, I was heavy on the amphetamines, the ecstasy when it first came into the country. You know, I was taking acid. Um, I wasn't a big on the weed smoking back then because it made me too paranoid and unstable. So for me, I, I was taking amphetamines at a young age because, you know, I could stay awake all night and, and not worry. You know, I, I didn't want to sleep sometimes. I was too scared. ICE is also known as crystal methamphetamine. ICE has become more popular than other forms of the drug like speed. You know, it always kept me on the ball. It became my friend rather than an addiction. You know, a lot of people talk about turning to drugs and alcohol to take them away from reality of life or, you know, numb the pain. Initially it was, definitely, you know, because you're sitting there and you're constantly thinking and, and you're getting upset, you know, like initially in the beginning. And then when you become numb to that emotion, you, it becomes fun, it becomes the norm. I was rebelling against everybody and everything, so why not? Why not take drugs and drink alcohol? And I mean, my crimes, I never actually hurt anybody directly or went and attacked anybody like that. And remembering too, I'm not glorifying any of this. This is my story, so yeah. you know, for the list, I just want to make that clear. When you Google your name, Brent Simpson, a lot of stuff comes up and a lot of the stories on you talk about you being a bikey. Now, you don't like to use the word bikey, do you? Bikey, biker, it's a dirty word. I mean, I was involved in an outlaw motorcycle club since I was very young. At then it was just like, yeah, you know, come and hang out. Come and, can, you know, ride a bike, you know, we'll give you a bike, you pay it off. I'm like, yeah, fuck, this is, yeah, chest out, you know. I'm, this is me. Times were amazing. It wasn't all, all bad and terrible and crime. And, and I really hope people don't, go, oh, wow, bikey's bike, and, you know, it's all terrible, bad. Look, it's not like that. I think the reputation is that if you're a bikey, you're a bad person. You go to precinct, we can get, where do you want to start? Schools, we want to start sporting groups, politicians, religion. Every group, outfit, club has its one percenters, if you want to put it like that. Doesn't mean everybody's bad, you know. Not every Catholic's a pedophile. Not every Muslim's a terrorist. Not every, you know... That's where I get my back up about things like that because people need to understand that, you know, just because you may not come from that walk of life, don't judge everybody by the same brush. We only hear of the bad things. There's a lot of good. There is a lot of good. And, and it goes across the board, as I just said, for all different denominations and religions and groups and what have you. There's good and bad everywhere. I guess it's the media. It's the way bikey gangs are represented in the media and you read stories about them and they're all killing each other and selling drugs. Tonight, a bikey war is brewing and police are closing in on his killers. You don't necessarily see the part where they have each other's backs and I guess there was a sense of support Look, for you. And there was a lot of family, brotherhood. I mean, you've got to remember there's a lot of broken young people that become men that join these groups for the love of a brotherhood, a family, you know, camaraderie, excitement. It is quite unique. You know, I was quite outrageous. She was a nurse and, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how we lasted that long. But anyway, we had a beautiful son together and um, he's a, an amazing young man today. And, um, yeah, we're both remarried and have our own families. And, yeah, life's good. So when you had your son, did you and your ex stay together? I had been involved in some pretty serious crime. Uh, one in particular was an off-duty police officer that had attacked me and I picked up a bar stool and attacked him back, so it wasn't real good. 
I was heavily wanted, as you can imagine, being a police officer that come off second best. Plus, I was wanted for drug supply. Uh, to me, I was not going to go down without fighting. And hence, like I said in the start, I'd changed my last name because I went on the run and changed my ID and all that sort of stuff. And I took off to Queensland because back then you could sort of get away with being wanted in one state, but living under the radar in another, which I did for seven years. So when you moved to the Gold Coast, did you stay in touch with your son? They were coming up. We uh, had a house down there that had to sell. So my partner at the time stayed down there until the house had sold and then um, moved up here. And then, yeah, we continued to live together up here for um, a few years after that. How did you get a mortgage in Sydney? I can't tell you that. I can't tell you that. <laughs> we went our separate ways uh, when Braden was five. So the police were after you in New South Wales. Did they catch up with you? Well, it worked out nearly seven and it was only by sheer chance that I'd sold a mobile phone to a particular person that I knew, a second-hand mobile phone, which I'd bought from somebody else. And back then, I put it in perspective, mobile phones were like a dime a dozen. You got one and you'd throw it away and buy another one. That was just how it was. But this lot come off the back of a truck. Um, this person in particular went tried to hock it one day and it came up as a stolen phone so they said obviously you know who, who'd you buy it off this and he described me and gave my name up sure as hell it wasn't hard for him to track me down and they still didn't know it was me so they'd take me in there question me and um, charge me and because the name that they had known at that stage had never been in trouble before they you know just sort of gave me a slap on the wrist and let me go sort of thing but they did my prints. Well, days later, they ran through my house and arrested me and realised I was somebody else. What happened then when they came in, they arrested you? Oh, look, it was just a matter of you know, going to court, refacing the charges I'd have taken across the border and had to go through the process, which took, you know, a year and a half. But in that time, I'd stayed out of trouble. I'd done a lot of good. I'd had businesses that I'd started. Like, I actually was genuinely having a go. I was playing rugby league up here um, for a good club in a high grade. Do you think being a father and being with your ex, did that help you want to get out of crime and play no. rugby league, get a job? No, I didn't know how to be a father. And look, to be honest with you, no, no, I'll be honest. I'm not going to sit here and say it did, not at all back then. No, I mean, I ended up, you know, deep in the, in the underworld with the motorcycle clubs. So it just continued down the track and it just, it didn't stop. You ended up going to jail for drug importation. When did that happen? I did. Yeah, 2009, 2010, I was arrested for commercial importation. Police in Sydney and Queensland have worked together to allegedly take drugs off our streets. That was pretty heavy. That was a big wake-up call. Um, my partner, my wife today, uh, we'd had a daughter, so I'd had my son to an ex-partner whom I hadn't seen for many years because she took off with him and... Uh, my beautiful partner, who I became my wife, she was just a sweet, sweet soul that had no idea what, what I was about, you know, and she just loved me for me. Um, and then, you know, as years went on, obviously she started to understand a little bit more and get to know me and sort of picked up on things and she hung in there, you know. Um, we had a beautiful daughter and then, yeah, uh, she was pregnant again just under four months or just on four months actually and I was um, heavily raided 
and arrested and are looking at 10 years. How did that come about? Was it people that you were mixed up with? Did someone go, hey, this is going to be worth a lot of money? You don't talk about it? No. No, I got done for it. That's it, full stop. I did my time. Was there an opportunity for you to give up other names for a lesser sentence? A hundred percent. When I was arrested, the first thing the federal police said to me is, you're gone, we've got you. And it was a controlled delivery. So I'd flown to Sydney to a shipping container at a location, went to go in the shipping container and uh, out of the blue, I'd never seen so many men in black, masked up, wrapped up. I was hogtied, GP in my head, gun to my face, like it was... It was crazy. And, you know, there was no one around this factory. There was no one. I, I, I even checked it. There was no one there. Within a minute, minute and a half of me getting out of the car and opening the shipping container, they come from everywhere. Just, it was crazy. Ninjas. And, um, you know, the federal police were just like, you're gone. We've got you. We've got you. I knew I wasn't coming home. Do you remember having to tell your partner that you'd been arrested? Well, what happened was they did a simultaneous raid. So they'd been watching me for four days prior to me going to Sydney. And I'd been at my my in-law's place, obviously our house. So they did simultaneous raids. When they arrested me, they were also raiding here in New South Wales on location at the properties. So they they knew what was going on before I knew what was going on. When I finally got to the police station, I'd rung up and I just said, "Uh, hi, babe, I'm not coming home. arrested and you know she was in tears and my father-in-law was just ropeable and he's such a great man I love him dearly and you know rightfully so you know his place is getting turned upside down my mother-in-law I'm like freaking out and you know, my partner was just distraught she was just this is yeah, she had no idea what did the judge say when you went to court he hoped that I could you know rehabilitate he was actually quite quite a good judge. You know, I was looking at 10 years, but because I pled guilty to start with, I got a 25% reduction. You know, my, my partner was pregnant. He did what I felt was right, and he ended up giving me six years on top and um, three on the bottom. What were those three years like? They were hell. You know, I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. I, I was very rebellious. I spent a lot of time in segregation because I was violent. For someone that, you know, was allowed out of his cell for an hour a day, and it wasn't always every day you got let out for that hour. I don't personally like even talking about it because it's just shit. Like, it really is. Any day you can die. Boredom is the evil of all in there. I mean, that's what causes a lot of the problems. But then, you know, all the emotion, all the stress, you know, the lock-ins. You know, there's days in there where you don't get out of a cell because they strike or they just don't have numbers to let you out. I was here at Grafton and the next minute I was sent to Bathurst. Like... My wife has a young daughter who's vision impaired and we have a young baby. She was driving to Kempsey, she was driving to Grafton, she would never miss a beat. It's very hard. Uh, it wasn't probably till the, the halfway point where I sort of thought I need to really start to have a good look at myself and dealing with my traumas and my abuse and understanding who I am and what I want out of life and where I'm going to end up once I walk out these gates. You know, This is either going to be my life, I'm going to die in here or I'm going to get out I'm going to be a great dad, I'm going to be a good partner, I'm going to be a good human, I'm going to help people, I'm going to, I'm going to be positive and use my lived experience to help others. And I, that's what I've done. I've spent the last six, nearly seven years dedicating my life to helping people live, because I live with type 2 bipolar, I also live with PTSD, so, you know, 
Mental health has been a huge thing in my life as well. When were you diagnosed uh, with bipolar? Not until years later? Yeah, they didn't even know what bipolar was. I was just manic depressive. I was ADD, ADHD. I was, I was just everything you could throw at me. Plus, here's a box of tablets, take them. They didn't know what bipolar was. So it would have been, you know, probably mid to early 2000s. How did you feel when you walked out of those gates? Amazing. My wife had flown to Sydney, driven to Bathurst. You know, she was at the gate with a fresh set of clothes for me and a pair of shoes and the biggest hug and smile. And it was very emotional. You know, she'd hung in there with me through all the, the ups and downs. She was raising our children. She was making sure I had money. You know, whilst I'm doing time in there, she was doing time out here. I, I have so much respect for any male or female that has a partner that is incarcerated because, you know, what they then have to do to carry on is, is, is huge. And she was pregnant when you went to jail. Was she able to bring your newborn baby in for you to meet? A couple of times I, we did. In the end, I sort of was at the point where I sort of felt, don't come visit. You know, not for any reason, it's just I couldn't do it to her, you know, like... You know, the travel, we ended up, you know, there were months and months there where I just didn't have anybody visit. Um, and, it, you know, I felt it was better that way. I didn't want my children to grow up too many memories of, you know, visiting their father in jail. Now we talk about it that they're older and my son's always asked, you know, the fact that I was not there for his birth out of four, four children, you know, which is something that I have to live with. I didn't get to see my son born, so... That's a really tough one, that one. My oldest son was cut off from me at that stage for years by his mum. I didn't know where he was or what he was up to, but coming home to a young, nearly four-year-old son that I really had no involvement with in his life was hard because he wouldn't just come to me. My daughter daughter was amazing. My daughter's on, yeah, she knew that's her dad. She was in my arms and she was just so happy and just, oh, it was... Jeez, yeah, that was special. But um, it was really, really tough because, you know, my young boy was the boy. He was the man of the family, you know what I mean? Like, who's this man coming into my mum's bed? Who's this man, you know, like, hugging my mum? Who are you? Like, it was it was probably really tough for him. And I didn't know really how to do it. I had to stop and I had to think and I had to learn because in my head initially, I'm just like, oh, I'm your dad, mate. Like, what the fuck sort of thing? What's your, not what's your problem to him, but in my head, I'm like, what's, what's the problem? You know, like, I'm dad, I'm home. So it was really sort of hard because I, I didn't know how to deal with that emotion. I had no plan for it. I wasn't ready for it. I just expected to come home and open arms and it was a little bit different. Rightfully so. I had three years of parole. I couldn't like literally couldn't work I couldn't there was nothing they wouldn't let me do anything I was on weekly visits constantly urined and you know drug tested and in that time I'd had a plan where I wanted to create you know a platform and a a charity and and do something amazing for my children to always remember their dad in in a great way not their dad that they visited the castle as we called it you know and yeah so I decided to ride a push bike across Australia and be the first in the world to do it in 45 days no one had ever ridden from east to west before. It was 4,564 kilometres all uphill. And you did that for charity? Did it for the charity that I started. The organisation was called Heavy Hitters. You know, and I worked very hard for nearly five years to keep that afloat, but unfortunately due to funding we had to dissolve it, which was very sad. So you did your ride. How long did that take you? 45 days. 45 
days. From Snapper Rocks on the Gold Coast to Cottesloe Beach in Perth. And you must have felt super proud of yourself. It was the most powerfully, emotionally charged period of my life and I am and I will always be proud of it, you know. Um, My children always know about the ride Dad did and, you know, the awareness that I brought, the positive media that came off it, like that was so good, so much good. And I had so many doubters, so many people writing me off, you know, he's just a cream, he's just shit, you know, what's he up to, what's he scamming, what's he doing, you know. And everybody got proved wrong. It was so good. Was it hard to find a job after that with the criminal record that you had? Absolutely. I had no life. I had no skills. I had nothing. So why would you employ me? I had to, you know, reset, start building up a resume and, and getting tickets and learning how to listen, how to learn, how to study, how to be a good human. <laughs> Predominantly, like, really focused on the charity. That was something that I did. What was the charity for? It was for mental health awareness and suicide prevention. Did you ever feel suicidal yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, I live with suicidality every day. This is where I, I sort of find it hard. I, and I don't really want to get into it all because it just it's too triggering. It, it is. Um, I had three major suicide attempts. Um, yeah, so... How I'm still here, I don't know, but I'm obviously here for a good reason and and that good reason is to try and help others not to go down that same path. There were times there I'd have some very dark times, you know, I'd be looking at trees along the Nullarbor and top end of Western Australia and Northern Territory and I'd think no one would find me here and I could just jump off, you know, so, yeah. What kept you going? Understanding what I was living with, you know, education. That has been the key to me being well. You know, the last six, seven years have been the best times of my life because I've understood what I live with. I've understood my traumas. I've understood how I can better that. And if I feel an episode coming along, what to do, to talk, to open up. I have support, people around me I trust, where I never trusted anyone in the past. You know, so for me, you know, daily um, helping somebody has been therapeutic. Making sure that, you know, you, you, you're always there to listen to somebody else helps you. Don't get me wrong, my, to just for the rest of my life, I'll always have my dark days. I only had one yesterday, you know. Like, there's just, it can happen. It, it can come on. It can be an episode. It can be a moment. But I have definitely learned over the years of how to acknowledge that, to embrace that, to find a positive in it. And it doesn't always come out like that. But I have learned coping mechanisms and, and ways of being able to live with, type 2 bipolar and PTSD. When did you get back in contact with your dad? Oh, many years ago. Was that your mm. choice? No. My wife my wife said, you've got to mend it. I'm like, nah, fuck him. I don't, I don't want nothing to do with him. And it was the best thing she ever did. She made the contact and um, we spent well over 10 years rebuilding our relationship and a lot of real open-hearted conversations, you know, and a lot of listening a lot of acceptance, a lot of understanding, and it's been so rewarding. And what about your son? You made contact with your eldest son. How did you find him? His 21st birthday two years ago, my niece had tracked him down and um, had made contact and somehow made it happen. And I got a phone call on his 21st birthday from him and the moment I heard his voice, it just burst into tears. I couldn't believe I was talking to my son on his 21st birthday. I, I mean, it was amazing. 
Did he understand when you talked to him about what had happened and why you weren't in his life for those years? Oh, look, you know, a lot of that wasn't my choice, but it was my choice, if I can put it that way. But he's a man. And yes, definitely, as I've done with my father, you know, we, we've had to have that conversation. I've had to listen to him. I've had to accept and respect him as a man and understand his feelings and thoughts and why. It's been awesome, actually. It's been, it's been really organic and really lovely. He's a, an amazing man and he's doing very well for himself. So you've got a good relationship with your dad now. You don't have anything to do with your mum. No. You have a great relationship with all four kids. I do. And each day I try to learn to be a better father than the day I was before. And I'm far from perfect, but I'm doing all right. You recently got married. I did. Congratulations. I did. My life. Thank you. She's, uh, you know, in credit to her, Yasoda, she's, she's made me the man I am today. You know, she's taught me to love, taught me to care taught me to respect and understand. You know, I, I truly am blessed to have the support and love that I have in my life today, something that I didn't have for so many years. Now, last year you started a podcast of your own, The Clink, Stories of Redemption. I did, yeah. How's that going? Well, funny you ask. Um, we've just hit a quarter of a million downloads. Wow. Just for, uh, that's well under a year that we've obtained that. So Podshape, a wonderful company that took me on and it's been an amazing journey uh, together. There's some really, really cool stories and it's all based around my own beliefs and, and visions of trying to share a genuine story, a hardship story, a true story, something that's hard hitting and really sort of knocks you back but then gives you hope. Uh, with an amazing story of redemption that inspires people to to never give up. There's some fascinating stories on there, really, really interesting people that you've got on there. So that's The Clink Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and that's your Instagram too, <laughs> at The Clink Podcast. It is, it is, Katie, yep. I pray that we continue to be able to help others because I know that, you know, just through people's connections um, and reaching out that it has helped thousands of people to be able to, relate and understand that there's things out there that you can do to change the negatives and, and really move forward in your life without carrying that anchor and weighing you down. What do you hope for the future? Good health, enjoy fatherhood, be a good husband and uh, keep working hard to, you know, hopefully set my children up with a great future. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for sharing your story as I said at the beginning of the podcast, such an inspirational guy who's gone through hell, had some really shit times, but come out the other side and become a good person. Oh, thank you. <laughs> some would say I'm still an asshole, but anyway. <laughs> like, in, in, in all seriousness, you know, like, it's never easy talking about yourself. I thoroughly love what I do. I have such a passion for helping others and inspiring others with great stories. Um, which is exactly what you're doing here today. So congratulations to you and um, all the guests that come on and have been on because it is, it's very powerful sharing a lived experience. And so I, I truly hope that, yeah, having me on here is, is going to help at least one person out there. And um, you guys keep doing the amazing job that you're doing. There's some stains on your photo. charity of choice is for his daughter who was born with congenital motor nystagmus. Nystagmus is a form of visual impairment characterised by uncontrollable eye movements and is caused by an abnormal function in areas of the brain.
If you or anyone you know would like more information, visit visionaustralia.org.